With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Ladies and gentlemen, it is showtime. Please welcome the team of the Fulhamish Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Fulhamish Podcast, your independent voice of Fulham FC. My name is Sammy James and I hope you are well wherever you are around the world during this crazy time. So this is kind of our return. We've naturally taken a small break from football uh, since it was seemingly put on an indefinite pause on the 13th of March and we've been working out what to do since then and our conclusion was to go back to releasing episodes once a week on a Wednesday because we were getting a lot of messages from you guys out there and obviously a lot of you are in isolation, a lot of you are working from home and you just need a little bit of a Fulham fix. And we totally get it, but rather than talk about when football is coming back, which all seems a bit futile at the current time, we thought we'd tackle some subjects, both serious and light-hearted, that are of interest to us that we don't often get to discuss due to the relentless nature of the football calendar. So today's episode is all about Fulham's finances. While we know that there are extortionate amounts of money in football, how many of us really understand the balance sheets when they get released once a year? I know personally, I can get my head around the profit and loss, but as soon as terms like amortization or parent companies start getting banded about, I I tend to get a little bit overwhelmed. So what we're going to do today is get to the bottom of Fulham's financial situation. Uh, Some of the accounts from our Premier League season have been released in the past few weeks, so it seemed like a perfect time. And we want to make it a little bit simpler for the layman like me and maybe you listening at home. Maybe I'm making an assumption, maybe you're a financial expert and this will all be very boring to you. But for, for most of us, It's all quite complicated. We want to know just how much money the Khans are pumping in. Was our Premier League relegation an unmitigated financial disaster? And will a club like Fulham ever realistically turn a profit? So here on the podcast today, I have Fulham's chief accountancy whiz, Farrell Monk. Farrell, how are you doing? Very good, thanks, Sammy. How are you? Yeah, no, not too bad. Thanks, pal. Nice to hear your voice. It's been uh, been a few weeks. I tend to see you guys so often because if it's not Fulham games, it's podcasts. So during the season, I tend to see you guys every three or four days. So it's been weird kind of not being face to face uh, with you. Uh, I'm sure it's been a right treat for you, though, Farrell. And uh, also, I've got a man who you may just know as Price of Football on Twitter. His real name, though, is Kieran Maguire. He's a university lecturer on football finance and a general well-known speaker on everything to do with the balance sheets behind the sports kieran welcome to the fulhamish podcast how are you doing i'm very well thanks sammy uh looking forward to this um looking forward to staring out of a window for uh, the next hour or so with with something to talk about so that's that's uh, that's a positive well if we can fill the void in your day kieran then uh, then half the job is already done so kieran uh, we want to just first of all start off with fulham's general finances um you released a thread on the 21st of march looking at fulham's attempt to get to the premier league and then the balance sheets uh when we got there the headline figure is that we lost 22 million pounds in one season despite the revenue more 
than trebling. What I want to know is reading a figure like that, it sounds all scary. Like, oh my God, how have Fulham mismanaged their finances quite so much when your revenue goes up, but you still manage to make a loss. But is it that bizarre, the financial position that Fulham are in? Or is it just a general sense of how difficult it is to get into the Premier League and just how much money you need to pump in to not only get there, but also stay there? Well, I think you're you're right that it costs an absolute fortune to get promoted. So whilst Fulham lost twenty two million pounds in twenty nineteen, the previous season they'd lost fifty nine. So it, it's an improvement in terms of their finances. Um, lots of people think that promotion to the Premier League is an end to having money issues and money problems. But that's not the case. Actually, two thirds of the clubs in in the top tier they're losing money on a week to week basis, uh, and Fulham's losses compared to the likes of uh, both Chelsea and Everton, who both lost more than a hundred million pounds, are actually small beer compared to um, some of the big boys. Um, and, and I estimate that total losses in in the Premier League last season are probably likely to be in the region of 400 to 450 million pounds. When we look at Fulham's finances, you correctly say that, you know, at 22 million pounds, it is quite staggering for a, a club of Fulham's size. And it's quite as a, as a weird relief to hear that throughout the Premier League, that in comparison, that Fulham's losses are actually quite small at, in regards to the, especially like, powerhouses supposedly like Chelsea uh, and Everton were obviously a, a big club in in comparison as well um, but as you as you say obviously the, the turnover as has we've grown a considerable amount about 100 million pounds on top of the 38 million pound turnover we had uh, the year prior but where you know apart from like the players player registrations as it called in the accounts the, the player transfers that we've we've got in you know specifically speaking like John michel Seri and Alexander Mitrovic, where else would would you have well have you seen costs rise because of it? Well, if, if you take a look at Fulham's total player costs, and I work those out as, as saying, well, let's start off with the wage bill, and then let's add on the the transfer fee cost for a single year. So, so if you sign a player for £20 million on a four-year contract. We, we, we use this horrid accounting phrase called amortisation. You say, well, 20 divided by four, you've, you've, got, a, you've got a cost to the club each year of £5 million. Um, if, if you add those two together, they came to 98% of Fulham's total revenue, which meant that by the time you then started to pay the overheads, you were, you're, you're practically starting off at a loss. Um, it's it's the inability of clubs to control those player costs, which is at the root of all the losses that are being made by um, not only Premier League clubs, um, but certainly costs uh, in in the Championship. And and I think uh, Fulham's strategy this year, which is to uh, keep players like Mitrovic and, and to take on other players on loan, on probably fairly high wages and, and paying loan fees um, is going to mean that this year's losses will be substantially higher. Uh, so un- unless you can get those costs under control, um, you, are, you are going to make a loss. And then it comes down to, to the club owner. You know, Mr. Shah is, is quite happy to write out the checks on a weekly basis or a monthly basis, whatever it's going to be, to, to give the club the funds to uh, control, well, not, to, not to control, but to underwrite those losses. 
Yeah, indeed. And one thing that I thought was particularly interesting um, when looking at the numbers for, for Fulham's time in the Premier League is actually our profit off player sales is nowhere near other clubs and actually whilst Fulham's got quite a famed academy and it's got a five-star academy and it's been pumping money into it when you looked at the, the the figures that actually other clubs were making through player sales and it's not something that as fans we ever really want to see we never want to see great players having to leave the club I found it surprising that Fulham weren't finding alternative sources for revenue when looking at the figures yeah I think that's that's fair comment the, the trouble with player sales is that what what you're effectively doing you're panning for gold you know you're you're sifting through um lots of young men at the start of their sporting careers and you don't know and, and indeed they don't know whether or not they're going to to make the grade so uh, running an academy is an expensive business um and there's no guarantee that um, you know, the players that go through the go, go through the club's uh, support program for young players are going to turn out to be a players that you will then go into the first team um, or b players that you will then turn to it's a horrible phrases that, that, that you decide to monetize by by selling them on uh, i mean you know clearly fulham have sold ryan sessignon since the end of the season um, and, and that will mean that those profits on player sales for 2020 uh, will be substantially higher than they were for 2019 when they were only two and a half million pounds. Well, with that as well, we, we've obviously reinvested that money, especially in the January transfer window when we made uh, the loan uh, signings of Bobby Decadova-Reed and Ivan Cavallero a permanent of, a, well, reported 15 million and 8 million but it's probably closer to about 11 million and probably about 6 or 7 million for those two so we've already gone and reinvested that money the the following on quite nicely to that when you're talking about the amortizations of players and the sort of how you sort of value those players as well um is that when you are a premier league club and you've got these assets within your books the values of the players automatically go up and it's quite interesting to go back throughout the the filing history and see that there is what is called an impairment loss, which is where you sort of look at the value of the assets within an organisation and then you make a, a judgment call on the uh, value of that, of that asset. And in this case, it's players. And quite a few times there has been, well, when Fulham got relegated last time around, they decided to devalue or it put an impairment loss of almost 12 million pounds uh, onto the books and add that to the 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 expense of the profit and loss. Um, the, the question I actually have is that if a player value is usually derived from the contract value when the player is signed on, is that then when a player signs a new contract, is that where they take, is that where the impairment loss comes from or is there other sort of valuations at play? What what happens in practice normally when when a club is relegated, the the board of directors will look at the squad, and they'll say, well, we we paid twenty million pounds from this for this player on a four year contract a year ago because we thought he was going to score the goals that were going to keep us in the Premier League. Um, 
if, uh, if if you write down one year of his cost, so a quarter of 20 is five. So the player would have a, a an accounting value of 15 million. Now, let's, let's be honest. Accountants have no idea about what a footballer is worth. So therefore, they will say to the board of directors, well, look, you, you signed him for 20 million quid. He scored three goals in a season. He's on 70 grand a week. What realistically do you think you could sell him for? And if the board say, well, we'd, be, we'd take eight million pounds now, you compare what you think you can sell the player for in the market to to his value in the accounts. And, and that difference is what's called an impairment loss. There is an awful lot of scope for manipulation of these numbers, though. Uh, and and it's, uh, when I see these numbers being bandied around, I do treat them with, a, with an awful lot of degree of caution because it allows clubs to accelerate or decelerate um, the, the, the profits and losses in, in those particular years. Does that then mean that you almost can't take... Uh, a football club's accounts really at face value all you're seeing is what the accountants want you to see for that particular year um kieran uh, well certainly as the balance sheet is concerned yeah the balance sheet's a load of rubbish it bears absolutely no resemblance hmm. to the value of the club because everything's based on um yeah th- we all know there's a difference between cost and value so if, if you take a look at uh fulham's footprint in terms of the stadium um you know that the, the, according to the accountants the the stadium is worth 121 million quid but i'm sure if you sold that for for retail purposes or or to, for for apartments you'd make an absolute fortune from it um and, and the last time that fulham stadium was valued was 2016 uh the the property market has changed in the three or four years since. In fact, let's face it, the property market has changed in the last three weeks. Um, so whenever you see figures in, in a balance sheet relating to players especially, um, those those figures are absolute nonsense because they're based on accounting principles rather than the transfer market value. And, and when you're valuing a player, you're thinking, well, what has he done in the last six months, 12 months for the club? That's what somebody else is effectively buying, hoping he can replicate that. Well, one thing that I think was particularly interesting for Fulham fans were John McElserry and Andre Frank Zambo and Gisa both bought for big sums of money the season that we came into the Premier League and both for independent reasons did not really have great seasons for the club. Now, in this summer, I think lots of people were particularly looking at John McElserry. It was absolutely clear that he was not going to play for Fulham in the championship next season. So lots of people, myself included, just thought, um, OK, well, we'll sell John McElserry and whatever we get, even if it's not the same amount of money we pay for him, we can then use that money to buy players in the championship. But then there were lots of not necessarily rumours, but lots of kind of debates happening in the fan base as to whether that was allowed to happen. If you sold John McElserry for, let's say, 10 million less than you bought him, could you then use that money to go out and buy players? And it confused a lot of people. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, that's where the amortisation, if I pronounced it right, comes into play, Kieran. Yes, I think we need to separate two issues. First of all, there's cash. And you know, the, the, I, I don't, I don't know enough about Mister Seri. I don't know, I don't know how much you paid for him, but um, 
if you had sold him, the cash can be used to buy a replacement player. That's not a problem at all. Um, you might have ended up selling him at a loss. And the implications there would be in respect of financial fair play. So the, the reason why the club might have decided to... And I have to apologise here. I, I don't know enough about the squad to comment. Um, I don't know whether, whether he's been led to go out on loan, whether he's he has, still he's gone out on He went out on loan to Galatasaray instead of right. um, yeah, uh, being sold on. Right. The reason why Fulham will have done that is that by putting him out on loan for a year, it means that they don't have to go and put through a huge loss in this year's accounts through selling him. And they're not the only club to have done that because um, when I looked at Stoke's accounts, um, Stoke's, Stoke City's three highest ever um, purchases of players, all of those players turned out to be duds. And they've all gone out on loan simply because if you loan them out, you don't have to record the losses. And it's the losses on the sales of the players that counts towards financial fair play. So what you're doing is you're effectively kicking the can down the road um, by, by not showing that the losses um, in the year in which the sale takes place by, by deferring the sale for a year or two. So when um, back in 2016, uh, two years after Fulham... Uh, were relegated from the Premier League first time around. Um, Fulham were caught out by the what was then the financial fair play uh, regulations, and we had a transfer embargo in January 2016. Um, there was quite a lot of players on um, the books at the time who fit exactly that bill. You know, we had players like Kostas Mitroglou, who was signed... Um, as sort of like an emergency striker to try and get Fulham out of a relegation snafu and only ended up playing three three games for the club in in the Premier League um, and was just consistently loaned out until we can get a decent transfer fee, which I believe was in his last year of his contract. Um, the same, perhaps you could say the same of Brian Ruiz as well and Stecklenburg. These were all players who were, you know, highly recognised uh, football players, internationals, who probably were earning a fair chunk as well as their initial transfer fee as well. So that kind of, that shows um, how Fulham tried to stay away from financial fair play, but were ultimately caught out. It seems to be that the, the club are attempted to, this time around, um, at least try to restrict that because um, they had to sell players like Ryan Sessegnon because... If we didn't, we'd be stung later down the line. It's not like we've got a lack of, uh, a, well, lack of funding coming from um, a particular owner who really wants to keep supplying as much funds as possible to keep to keep uh, the club um, competitive. But we just had to because otherwise we wouldn't be able to reinvest it in other players that in other places that we've had to sort of move players on because they are no longer either wanting to play Fulham or you know we they need to go out and loan somewhere. So Kieran, looking at the cons. They keep on saying about how they eventually want to make Fulham a sustainable club. And I imagine that is the same line that is banded about at lots of football clubs from their owners. They want to become a sustainable club. And I've even seen that the blue lot up the road want to become a sustainable club. Even Abramovich wants that to happen, despite the fact he's put in probably over a billion um, over, over the years. Is that ever going to happen? I saw that you said that Fulham's losses over the years, I don't exactly know what kind of time period that is, is 358 
million. Is there ever a prayer that Fulham could achieve that? I think we've made one profit one year in the past 11 years. Um, well, I've got Fulham's profits on my little spreadsheet in front of me. And the last seven years, you've made losses of 23, 16, 20, 20, 30, 53 and 21. So you can understand why Mr Khan wants to reverse that because it doesn't matter how wealthy you are you'd, you'd rather not be writing out checks for four to five hundred thousand pounds a week to subsidize a football club so yes I, I think it's it, it's a wish I, I'd, I'd like to be 12 stone but I'm not um, and, and I, I sort of keep making a half-hearted effort to get there from my current 16 stone but if, I, if I'm honest I think it's it's an objective which is unrealistic um, if Fulham are going to be playing in the championship the average losses in that division are around about twenty-five million pounds a year per club. So, wow. so Fulham are there or thereabouts. Now, what Fulham could do is to say, well, instead of having our annual ambition to get promoted or get into the playoffs in the championship, we're going to effectively take the same approach as the likes of Rotherham United or Burton Albion, and those clubs, when they're in the when they're in the championship, said our aim is to break even, and they achieved that aim, and they both got relegated. So. It's this conflict between sporting ambition and financial ambition, um, and, and trying to, to to balance those two, I think, is impossible in the championship because there's so many club owners who only want success on the field, and therefore they're the ones prepared to accept the losses of twenty to thirty million pounds a year. Um, because they want to get into a playoff place. If you if you want to have financial common sense at Fulham, then realistically you've got to start the season and say our aim is to finish fourth bottom. So that's why a lot of football fans um, out there are constantly confused by owners' actions and their investments. Because if they're not, if they're spending too much money, then there's going to be football fans outside of it who are going to be saying, "Well, it's unfair." And they're just going to run the, the club into the ground. And then on the other side of things, there are if the owner decides not to invest any money in the aim of being sustainable, then the fans would be well, the fans of that particular club would find it that then being uncompetitive and they're trying to suck the life out of the club, which there must be other sorts of ambitions and objectives at play. I think if you look throughout the amount of money that Shahid Khan has actually invested in this time, you know, if you just look at that losses, you know, you're looking at around 100 million, 150 million there. Uh, not to mention all the stuff that all the investments he's going to be making to the stadium and the training ground as well. It's it's kind of obvious that owners out there, and, and in particular Shahid Khan, they're not they're probably not looking for immediate revenue gains. What they're probably looking for is just to grow the asset and see if they can make the club sustainable in a competitive environment, so their revenues aren't affected too much. Would you agree with that, Kieran? Um, I, I'd agree. To, uh, I'd qualifiedly agree that yes. Um, I, I think Shahi Khan probably, when he says sustainable, he says I, I don't want the losses to be above X. Um, a, a football club, and it's a it's a terrible phrase. This um, a football club to a billionaire is a trophy asset. It's the same as having a fleet of racehorses. It's the same as sponsoring a a Formula One team. It's the same as having a big yacht or a, or a couple of helicopters. You don't actually expect to make money from it. 
it's there for your entertainment, it's there as an indulgence, because um, whilst there is an awful lot of money coming into football, that money is going out just as quickly um, in, in the form of costs, and, and ultimately th those are the costs which have been agreed by the club owners. So effectively, Shade Khan saying, this is my plaything. This is really nice. It employs my son and um, we get a lot out of it. And every time I come to London, I can use it for the Jacksonville Jaguars. And he's got ambitions to build the stand and stuff. He's just saying to himself, I would like this not to cost me more than 20 million pounds a year. 20 million pounds a year for me is the same as having like you or I having a golf membership or um, a gym membership or something like that. I, I think that's a perfect analogy. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's an indulgence. Except we're dealing with people who have levels of wealth that that we cannot relate to. So yeah, for me, re renewing my gym membership, you know, and, and whatever it, you know, the five hundred pounds a year that it cost me, or renewing my season ticket. Yeah, the wife says, "Are you going again next year?" And I say, "Well, I've been doing it for the last fifty years. I'm not going to stop now." <laughs> and, and you. Um, and and it is an indulgence. You know, it's it's not a necessity. As we're finding out at present, um, the, the most the three most important things in life are food, clothing, and shelter. And provided you've got that, then you can survive during the pandemic. Everything else is a frivolity. Well, I suppose for Shahid Khan, then that it's food, shelter, and a football club. Um, and you know, I suppose that's kind of how a lot of football fans and myself are starting to feel a little bit at the moment with the lack of football and sport. In general, I suppose for 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 Fulham and specifically uh, Shahid Khan, in terms of you know his sort of losses, if you look back at the financial fair play regulations, he he's allowed to make losses of well for the next three years he's allowed to make losses of sixty one million pounds um, for the three year rolling every year I think uh, according to the profit and sustainability charter in the championship. Um, if you're in the championship season, you're allowed to make a loss of, of 13 million um, as long as you can provide money towards it. But there's like a, a you know, even in the across the championship, you're you're allowed to make losses of up to five million pounds. And I think that's sort of that's sort of like the acceptable range, perhaps, that, you know, Shahid Khan would probably want us to be within the championship. But in the Premier League, it goes up to 35 million pounds a year. So I think that, you know, given given what the uh, football environment is like, um, there are these allowable losses which owners just are willing to take on the chin just for these 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 bit of uh, bit of glory now and again. Okay, well, we're going to get some listener questions um, in a moment, Kieran. I did want to ask a couple more things um, related to uh, kind of the stadium and the fan base at, at, at Fulham. Now, it's pretty much nearly a year to the day where uh, Fulhamish and other organisations in Fulham took part in a campaign called Stop the Greed. And it was all about um, what we saw as excess ticket pricing at Fulham. And Fulham were charging between about £45 and £55 pounds for the cheapest ticket to go to a Premier League game at Craven Cottage. I think it was about 50-50 split on whether it was 45-55, depending on the level of the opposition. Now, in your um, tweets that you put out uh, a couple of weeks ago, 79% of Fulham FC's income last year was from broadcasting. Um, however, when you do look at the balance sheet, there is still a significant but not major amount of money that comes in from match day 
revenue. And, and one of our big arguments was for the sake of potentially alienating supporters and a fan base and not building a long term fan base that charging high prices like that seemed very, very futile, considering the amount of money that was then being spent on players that weren't even necessarily getting into the squad for Fulham. What is your thoughts generally on ticket prices, how much clubs should charge and, and are they justified in those kind of prices because there was a mixed reaction amongst our fan base some people said well that's the price you've got to pay to, to watch Premier League football it costs a lot of money therefore you've got to put a lot of money in so I'd be very interested um, in your point of view I guess both from a financial point of view and and as a fan that that goes and has a season ticket yourself um, uh, season uh, ticket prices are a very sensitive issue because we we have this viewpoint as football being a working class sport and, and therefore perhaps we feel that that working class prices should be charged um i i went to the theater in the west end uh, a couple of weeks ago to see pretty woman with my wife this this is this is the price i pay for renewing my season ticket um and i think the the tickets cost 102 pounds each and this was for a matinee show and i was going well this is just crazy because un- unlike a football match I knew everything had been scripted, so there was there was the, the one thing I love about football is I don't know what's going to happen next, and there's that that element of drama and excitement and unpredictability, which to me makes football uh, unique in in terms of many of the entertainment forms that we have in front of us. Um, so, what what exactly should we be benchmarking football? Uh, football ticket prices against if it's if it's compared to the west end in london then actually the the prices they're not they're not cheap um but they they are not expensive either um i've got tickets to see the killers at uh at at, uh, at the uh, the emirates now again that those were a ridiculous price um but I, I do it on the basis, well, I, I like music. I, I like other forms of entertainment. Should football, therefore, be at much lower ticket prices? If Fulham were selling the tickets at 45 to £55 a piece in the Premier League and they were getting crowds of 10,000, then clearly they've got their ticketing pricing structure wrong. If they're selling tickets at 45 to £55 each and they're selling every ticket for every match, what have they done wrong? Because you know, they, they, they could probably argue, well, we, we could have sold we could have priced them at sixty pounds each, and we and we'd have also sold out. Um, so it's it's a ve- it's a very emotive issue. Um, if you are a Fulham fan and you say, well, the if we'd cut prices in half instead of getting ticket income of just under eleven million, we'd have ended up with ticket income of five to six million. Would that have made a big difference overall to Fulham's finances? No. Could that extra five million pounds a year paid for the wages of two players who could have made the difference between surviving a relegation fight and getting relegated? Then you'd all say, yeah, it's worth it. So there is no right answer. Um, We do pay premium prices for other products. I, I buy an iPhone and I pay some ridiculous amount of money for it. I don't particularly like handing over the money, but ultimately nobody's forced me to buy it and we we do have a choice when it comes to football you know and and i know people say well i've been supporting the club and and i'm sure you're exactly the same as me i've been following my club for 50 years um 
therefore I have to go. No, I don't. I, I am a grown up. I can simply turn around and say, well, I think you're taking the mickey a, a, a step too far and I'm not prepared to pay for it. And if enough people did that, then the football clubs would have to t- sit up and take notice. We are the problem because we accept these prices and we also accept the uh, very high um, subscription prices that we pay to watch football on television. Yeah, you're, you are absolutely right on a lot, on a lot of things there. The, the added element um, with, in this whole thing is, is, is that it, it's football and football comes with um, a lot of sort of human, emotive uh, sort of attributes that come with it that... You know, it's gone are the days maybe a hundred years ago when literally the football club was, you know, and the people that are employed by the football club were just, you know, custodians of the fans itself. And I think that is continuing to the day that this kind of like feeling that we are, when in reality we, we're not. The the staff are employed by the football club, the football club are employed by an owner or, or a consortium of owners and they're, you know, they're there to sort of... Um, to gain success and um, and to try and turn a profit or try and sort of make as much wealth for the for the owners there and by by any means necessary um, and you know perhaps that perhaps the fact that clubs aren't you know custodians of the fans anymore is 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 a reality that supporters need to need to just suck you know just suck it up and just take it on the chin and we do have a choice whether to support this club or not not you know we're not going to suddenly be put it thrown in jail if we decide not to not to go to fulham every week uh, and not renew our season ticket anymore i think the other side of it is that you know that it is a sport at the end of the day and um and you know there still needs to be that element within football itself that it should be there for the fans in inverted commas um, and you know there there is going to be this big balance uh, balancing act that the owners are trying to do, um, and they probably you know were just on the on the wrong balance side. It was just about a tip in the wrong favour with their ticket pricing strategy of last season. And thankfully they've you know they've um, got the messaging. They've they've got the they've heard the messages correct, and they've decided to reverse that slightly for the season yeah i mean i'm going to respectfully disagree with you kieran in the nicest possible way only because i feel like when you have a theater or even going to a golf club or something like that if you don't like the service or the show is bad or you don't feel like you want to go there anymore you can change i guess that's the problem that football clubs have and it's a very unique problem in the sense of you are tied to it you cannot go and go well Fulham are charging loads I guess you could go and watch some non-league football but you're very unlikely to go cool well I'll just go start supporting Brentford and I'll stand behind that uh, terrace but anyway I I do kind of get the point and very interesting from your point of view where you put there about yes if they slash tickets in half could that be the difference between a player that keeps you up or not and I guess when you look at the figures it likely could be if, if I mean half is quite a dramatic uh, amount of money but I, I certainly see where you're going okay one more kind of then on on the stadium before we do the listener questions the Fulham uh, are redeveloping the Riverside stand at the moment and I think it's quite clear that the key driver behind this is an increase in hospitality revenue and when you see that the amount of money that clubs like Manchester United and Arsenal are able to make um, through the usage a lot of their stadium of course they've got huge brand deals and stuff like that how big a difference could 
a, a proper stand that Fulham can use all year round to generate revenue. What kind of difference could that potentially make to, to Fulham's finances in, in years to come, Kieran? Um, I, I think it will make them more competitive, regardless of the division that they're in. Um, given the location of Fulham, uh, it's a very desirable area. It's a very affluent area. It's the type of um, location which is going to attract people with disposable income who are prepared to pay premium prices. So so you can see the benefits of that. Um, and I, I work in Liverpool. Um, and I'm aware that uh, you know, Liverpool Football Club have expanded Anfield. But one of the big issues was trying to get the right balance in terms of extra hospitality seats compared to extra seats for the regular fans. And they've just about pulled that off, even though that, that initially they got, again, the pricing structure wrong. And just to go back to your, your, your pricing question, I'm, I'm not saying that, that football prices are right. I mean, if I go back to the... The, the, the 1966 World Cup, you could have watched England um, get to the final of the World Cup. And you could watch all of England's game same, and it would cost you £2.62 for, for six games of football. And, wow. and, and, and that's just how crazy it has become in terms of, you know, and even taking into account inflation, um, you know, it would have cost you, inflation would have taken you to 46 quid to watch six six games of the world cup um so so football prices have accelerated we do now have, have the the prawn sandwich brigade loathe them or loathe them they can make a significant difference to the club's finances and if that money is invested in the squad and on the back of that you you get a promotion you get a good cup run then it's it's a price worth paying through gritted teeth i'd much rather every ticket went to you know families you know dads lads mums daughters aunts uncles and so on from from the local population who are paying a, a fair price you know and i think that season ticket prices in the premier league are actually reasonable um in the main you know i think i pay 550 quid for mine and it so that works out as less than 30 quid a game and that includes my transport to the match as well um you know it's 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 bearable it's not I, i'd rather would I, would, it, would I rather it be less yeah i'd rather my own iphone cost me 200 pounds less as well um but it is the market that we're in and um, the, the hospitality sector is, is part of modern life. Um, it, it's, it takes away from our romantic notion of football as being this, this place you, where you go to at the age of seven and you, and you, you stop supporting the club when you die because the, the corporate supporters are different to us. Indeed. Right. Well, we'll take a quick break there, Kieran, and uh, we'll come back and uh, we've got some listener questions for you. So uh, stay right there. If you enjoy Fulhamish and listen to us on Apple Podcasts, please consider giving us a positive rating and review. It really helps us to reach new Fulham fans across the world. If you don't use Apple but want to give us a review, head to the Fulhamish Facebook page and give us a rating there instead. Thank you. Welcome back to the Fulhamish Podcast. It's Sammy James here with Farrell Monk. Hello. 
And we are still joined by football finance expert, Kieran Maguire. How are you doing, Kieran? I'm very well, chaps. Good stuff. OK, well, we asked for some questions uh, related to this subject uh, on Twitter earlier. Uh, and Kieran, we just wanted to put uh, a few to you before we finish the podcast today. So uh, I'm going to start off with this one from Gary C. Uh, he says, do any other clubs in the championship owe over £80 million on transfers to other clubs? Is this sustainable? Kind regards, Gary. Uh, Kieran, your thoughts on that? Um, I don't think they owe as many. There's, there's quite a few clubs that will owe in in the tens of millions. Um, the, the the reason why Fulham got themselves into that particular pickle is that they they did invest significantly when they were promoted to the Premier League, and um, so they bought players for 120 million pounds in 2018-19. But a lot of those purchases were made on credit, and um, it's a bit like my wife with a credit card. You know, it, it's all very well buying the goods, but eventually you're going to have to go and turn around and make the repayments uh, when those when those instalments come due. Um, and I think Fulham are now in that position, which is is a bit of a well, it's a bit of a pickle. But I mean, Shahid Khan, as we both know, is uh, is a very wealthy man. So although. They spent £120 million on players. Um, they only paid cash of £58 million last year. So therefore, there was an awful lot of money on credit. Uh, Dan Thorin asks, um, he says, being an American, I've never understood how wages work in the UK. When a player makes X per week, it's for how many weeks? The season, the year, just the weeks the team plays. Um would you mind explaining to, to Don uh, as an American listener, and we have a lot of American listeners to this podcast, um, just how kind of player wages work here? And yeah, I, I think this is actually this goes back to, to football being a a working class sport, and we, we, we've always tended to quote players' wages in terms of weeks, but actually we should be really be focusing on their annual salary. I think the reason why there's a slight difference compared to um, some of your listeners in the States is that if you look at sports such as the NFL, players are only paid during the season. Now, when it comes to a football player, actually he's paid 52 weeks of the year. Um, so what we tend to do is to take the annual salary and divide that by 52. So my estimates is that in 2018-19, in um, the average Fulham player was on 44 grand a week. But if you multiply that by 52, realistically, we're, we're talking at just under two and a half million pounds a year. Okay, uh, this one from Alex. Um, he says he reckons in terms of making us financially sound while pushing the limits as much as possible, he thinks the Khans are pretty solid. He asks if anything else other than a loss in our first season in the Premier League could have realistically been expected. I, I tend to agree with him, but then looking at what Sheffield United are doing this season, maybe it is, prof uh, maybe it is possible to not push your financial limits too much and realistically stay in the top flight but then Norwich kind of attempted the same and, and, and look what's happened to them yeah I think Norwich is a slightly unusual scenario uh, Norwich didn't expect to be promoted and what they've done is that they said that we're going to take an air shot at um, at the Premier League we're not going to spend any money on players uh, we, yeah, every, we'll give everybody a pay rise but not a huge one and we're going to make a lot of profit from our one season in the Premier League and when we drop down into the Championship as, as we expect to and we're actually being in a very strong position in 2020-21 assuming some form of 
sporting normality returns following the pandemic. Um, if you if you compare um, Fulham's position, um, I think those losses were perhaps a wee bit high because Wolves made a profit of twenty two million pounds last year. Cardiff made a profit, you know, and those were those were clubs that were also promoted with you from the previous season. Um, if you go back uh, a couple of years ago, both Brighton and Huddersfield made profits in their first years um, in the Premier League. So so it can be done. Um, Fulham really went for broke in their championship year. So that meant that they were, they were bringing into the Premier League large amounts of uh, losses and big wages. And when you add on top of that, £120 million being spent on new players, then realistically, um, you would have, A, uh, expected to make a, a loss. But B, I've got to be honest, everybody was surprised that, that Fulham were relegated because the extent of their spending was so significant, you would have expected a better return on that investment. Okay, well, uh, I think we'll have to leave the podcast there. But um, Kieran, thank you so much uh, for for all your input today. Um, Farrell, did you have anything else that you wanted to uh, add or to or to put to Kieran quickly? Um, nothing to put to Kieran, but I think it's worth emphasising that the big difference in between um, Fulham and you know perhaps Norwich and Sheffield United that Fulham relied heavily on the loan market. Um, when they got, well, when the season they got promoted. So, you know, we were left with hardly any players, well, especially first team ready for the Premier League at that time, you know, even just down to having, you know, no, hardly any strikers, you know, our main strikeout leaved in Mitrovic and we needed, we needed a new one and it was the same across the board. So we had to spend some money, but obviously it wasn't expected to be such a ridiculous sum of money in the end of the day. Well, thank you very much for listening today. Kieran, thank you for your input. Thank you very much. Thanks for the invite. Uh, and Farrell, thank you very much as well. Thank you very much. Uh, we will return next Wednesday uh, with another Fulhamish podcast. Uh, what we're going to be doing, uh, as well as some of these in-depth episodes, uh, are top 10s as well. So uh, next week, we're going to look at Fulham's top 10 unsung heroes. George Cooper is going to be hosting the podcast, uh, and he's going to take a look at some of those slightly forgotten names that deserve a bit more of a place in Fulham folklore than maybe they currently have. So we will see you next week. Stay safe out there. And we'll catch you again. Come on, you whites.